רגע, לפני שמתחילים, אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח ומתחילים. הפודקאסט של דוקטור יוזביץ'. Ever since the Enlightenment, it seems that there is an inherent conflict between God and science. If you also think so, this video is precisely for you. In this conversation, I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Stephen Meyer. Stephen got his PhD from Cambridge University in the history and philosophy of science. He published several exceptional books, including Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt. David Galanter, the famous computer scientist from Yale University, wrote about that book, Darwin's Doubt. Stephen Meyer's thoughtful and meticulous book convinced me that Darwin has failed. His latest book is The Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Revealed the Mind Behind the Universe. It was a mind-blowing conversation. By the way, in my opinion, many people confuse between creationism and intelligent design. And in the, this is the source of many, many mistakes conducted in the field. Steve has a great distinction between them. Hi and welcome to my channel. My name is Dr. Roy Yozovich. In this channel, I speak and converse with the most interesting and influential people from all around the world discussing science, philosophy, religion, artificial intelligence, and more. If you like this video, please consider subscribing, hit the bell button, and be part of this great community. And now, without further ado, Stephen C. Meyer. Steve Meyer, the author of The Return of the God Hypothesis, thank you so much for coming. How are you this morning? I'm doing very well. And the evening for you, yes, halfway around the world. <laughs> So we <laughs> definitely, this is just halfway around the world. So we have in the background, the return of the God hypothesis, very small and much bigger signature in the cell. And we have also Darwin doubts, which I can't see right now. Okay. Yes. Nevertheless, be before we start with the book itself and its argument, I think it is very important to define the terms. And we, before we delve into the argument in the book, one should define the terms. Now, when we say God, I can think of at least two very different concepts. One is the God of Aristotle, the unmoved mover, the unmoved mover. but we also have the Hebrew or the Christian God, someone, not something that has moral demands from humanity. And 40 years ago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn delivered his Men Have Forgotten God speech, where he said, and let me quote, While I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disaster that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. This is, this is why all this had happened. And it seemed that Mr. Solzhenitsyn refers to the moral God. So my first question is, What God are we talking about? Um, I'm talking about not the unmoved mover of Aristotle, but the God who a, a God who can be defined by reference to attributes that match those of the moral God, a transcendent, intelligent, personal, and uh, being who is also active in the creation. I, this is what I think can be discerned from a careful examination of the creation or of the evidence that we have about biological, physical, and cosmological origins. And you say that it, it oh, I can see it, I can see that we have like the intelligent thing, right? like in the evolution, I teach genetic uh, algorithms. And if we, If you want to apply genetic algorithms in computers, we need something from the future to pull the process right. to the desired outcome. So this right. is one thing that I can understand. In genetic algorithm, you need to do or evolution must be 
local can't be global and genetic algorithms must be global. But this is not the kind of thing that demands that has moral demands. So again, we say two things. One is the intelligent thing, the one you know that pulls the evolution. One can say this. And the other is the 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 one with the moral demands. Is it well, fair to say? You 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 you've introduced the term the the moral god. I would I would simply argue that the evidence from the natural world supports the existence of a personal god in the sense that intelligence or mind is a necessary attribute of that entity which is necessary to explain the evidence from the, uh, the natural world concerning its origins, concerning the origin of the universe, the the fine tuning of the universe, and and um and life so we're not simply talking about um the abstract notion of um uh we're not talking about intelligent simpliciter and so in a sense it'd be maybe better for me to develop the thesis on my own terms without trying to fit into those two categories but i think what you have are attributes um of my let me back up my after my first two books uh Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt argued that the evidence that we have in the biological realm, in particular of the digital code that's present in the DNA molecule and the hierarchical information processing system that's present in living cells and living animals is best explained by a designing mind of some kind. I did also address genetic algorithms uh, and showed that even those simulations of evolution require very important inputs of information coming always from an intelligent agent um, and also always an end-directed um, aspect to them, <laughs> as you've just described. That's very contrary to the way natural selection works. Uh, natural selection selects for functional advantage it can't foresee future uh functional requirements um and, and yet gen genetic algorithms require that sort of foresight which is inconsistent with the way natural selection is supposed to to work and therefore they actually i argued simulate the need for intelligence in the process of biological origins if they simulate anything um so uh, after the first two books in which i argued for the need for some sort of intelligence or mind to account for the information bearing properties of life, just to say as a shorthand. Um, many of my readers wanted to know, well, who do you think the intelligence is? Uh, or what is the identity of the in designing intelligence? And what can we tell about such uh, a, a being from, from science? And so I broadened the scope of the inquiry to include the origin of the universe and the origin of the fine-tuning of the universe and argued that whereas some biologists um as, including even the great francis crick had proposed at one point or another that perhaps there was design in living systems but it would have it 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 would have come from an alien intelligence within the cosmos an imminent intelligence uh, a, a space alien this was a, his famed panspermia hypothesis which he he later disclaimed out of i think embarrassment but um there have been scientists who have said well yeah there is evidence of design but maybe it's come from an imminent intelligence within the cosmos by by bringing in the evidence we have from cosmology and physics of a definite beginning of the universe and a universe that has been finely tuned for life from the beginning, I argued that no intelligence that's merely imminent within the cosmos could account for the whole range of evidence that we have about biological and cosmological origins. The universe had a beginning, it's been fine-tuned from the beginning, and since the beginning we've had large bursts or infusions or increases in the information content of our biosphere, suggesting the, the activity of a designing intelligence after the beginning. So as I then looked at the different metaphysical hypotheses, whether we were talking about uh, panspermia or deism or pantheism or materialism, it was really only classical theism that could provide an adequate explanation for these three classes of evidence. We need to posit a designing intelligence that is not just intelligent, but also 
transcendent in the sense of being separate from the creation, no being within the cosmos could account for the origin of the fine tuning upon which its later evolution would depend, nor could any being within the cosmos account for the origin of the cosmos itself. It would to, to account for those classes of evidence that have come out of modern science. We need to posit a mind which is in some way separate or transcendent uh, over or separate from or transcendent over the, the creation, the universe as a whole. And so that I think leads you to classical theism. Um, I don't in this book argue for moral attributes for that agent, but I think there is a very strong argument uh, for for theism from the reality of um, moral propositions that I don't think can be accounted for in the objectivity of which I don't think can be accounted for apart from a transcendent um, valuer as the source of those uh, moral propositions. So I, th I think there are strong arguments for classical theism, including the moral attributes of God, but I, I uh, focus uh, on those attributes, which I think can be known from the natural world in this particular book. Okay. You, you said I so I many, I Yo, so I many wonderful things. Yeah. So many wonderful things. And I, I, I just keep wondering how should they navigate this? And um, I wanted to do like a, a slight uh, mid-turn into signature in in the cell, but I will not sure, do it. Sure. I will not yeah. do it. I, I I want to go in the original direction, okay? And I think that we will come to signature in the cell, which is a, a great argument later on, okay? One thing, sure. when I read your Wikipedia page, you say, Stephen C. Meyer is an American author and a former educator, is an advocate of the pseudoscience of intelligent design. And this is why we had pseudoscience in Wikipedia. And in a conversation you had with Ben Shapiro, you made a great distinction between what is creationism and intelligent design. What is the source of knowledge? And I think this is a very important distinction to make. So could you please elaborate on the distinction between creationism and intelligent design? Let me just say that in Israel, even though I'm an ultra-Orthodox, the concept creationism as being understood in the US is barely visible here. Almost no one believe in that the world was created as in the first chapter of Genesis. Almost no one, no one, no one, no one, no one. So like in what Michelangelo painted in the Sistine Chapel. So we don't know or we don't, I am not familiar with any creationist but I'm familiar with many intelligent designers. So if you can please uh, yeah, set the sure. terms. Yeah, well, intelligent design is the idea that there are certain features of life and the universe that are best explained by reference to a designing intelligence or mind rather than by reference to undirected material processes for example the process of natural selection if you're operating in the biological realm which is not to say we deny that natural selection is a real process but we think there are features that require reference to a mind or intelligence to account for their origin um creationism is um and, and, and intelligent design differs from creationism in in, in two very significant important and important ways first of all um uh, intelligent design is an inference from biological or cosmological data, whereas creationism is a deduction from religious authority, uh, a deduction or an interpretation of a religious authority, typically the first chapters of Genesis. Um, secondly, creationists typically affirm that the universe and uh, planet Earth are very young on the order of thousands of years. Typically, those dates are derived from some sort of calculation from the genealogies in the book of Genesis. Um, whereas uh, intelligent design is an age-neutral theory, which is concerned about the question of whether life in particular is uh, the product of actual design or 
merely manifests the appearance of design, for example, as the the neo Darwin the neo Darwinists say. So it has a different um, it, it's its focus of interest is entirely different. Most proponents of intelligent design, uh, most prominent proponents at least, hold to an ancient Earth and an ancient universe. Uh, Except the standard. Um, um, dating system of modern science there, there are of course young earth creationists who would also accept that there is evidence of intelligent design but uh, uh not, not all um uh proponents of intelligent design are young earth creationists by any means uh though if you're a young earth creationist you pretty much also must accept that there's evidence of design in the universe so yeah. uh that that, that that's a uh, convergence that's unavoidable and i, I so that's I, it, that, that's it. so there's a both an epistemological difference we're looking at the evidence of the natural world mm -hmm. and making an inference rather than starting from biblical authority and then there's a substantive di a difference in in content of the theory in that id has in, intelligent design does not affirm a young earth or young universe and again, I think the most important thing or the most important distinguish, uh, distinction, in my opinion, is the ultimate authority. Authority you uh, goes, you go to the ultimate authority as the scientific method and say, okay, I read the data, I search for explanations. Some explanations are are not strong enough in the context of the material world or pure materialism. Hence. I seek explanations in other domains or in, in and but my ultimate source or my ultimate uh, hierarchy of knowledge is the scientific method. It's not chapter one of Genesis. I think it's very important. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Although okay. uh, when a couple of qualifications, even in that short statement, and that is that um, the, the first is that uh, as a philosopher of science, I think there are more there is more more than one scientific method and the scientific method that's relevant to just to an examination of origins is an historical scientific method the very method that darwin championed in the origin of species based on work that had previously been done by for example the great geologist charles lyell who i think pioneered a distinctively historical method of scientific investigation and so we're using that scientific method and also, um, the when we when I infer intelligent design, I'm quite prepared to defend that as a scientific inference because we have scientific methods for detecting the activity of intelligence. When I go further in this most recent book and address questions of the identity of the designer, I'm quite happy to call my God hypothesis, if you will, uh, uh, a metaphysical hypothesis. It happens, though, that there isn't a clear distinction, I think, between uh, scientific and me meta metaphysical reasoning, that we use the same types of uh, methods of evaluating competing hypotheses to assess both scientific theories and theories with metaphysical implications. And so I'm not a strict proponent of the, de the demarcation between science and philosophy or even science and uh, a religious hypothesis. I think we use the same kinds of methods of reasoning to address both proximate questions about the natural world that are by convention termed scientific and deeper questions about ultimate reality that would be by convention termed metaphysical. And that I think brings us back to that um, uh, uh, designation of me in uh, in Wikipedia as a pseudoscientist because they are employing a, a, a demarcation between science and um, and philosophy or metaphysics in that designation. I think it, it's actually ma mainly a term of, of of abuse or a term by which people can be stigmatized without engaging an argument. But it also presupposes that there is a definition of science that has been widely accepted by scientists and philosophers that can define science normatively and distinguish it from other disreputable forms of inquiry that um, the writers of Wikipedia entries would prefer not <laughs> to engage. Uh, um, but uh, this this whole problem, this whole issue of demarcation or 
defining science normatively in a way that allows uh, uh, someone to exclude from consideration an idea that they'd rather not consider has really fallen into disrepute, especially among philosophers of science. If people are familiar with the work of Larry Loudon, for example, a great American philosopher of science, he says people simply uh, don't use the idea of pseudoscience anymore. It's fallen into de demarcation as an enterprise has fallen into disrepute. And therefore terms like pseudoscientists are usually just used as shorthands for trying to eliminate or from consideration an idea that that people would prefer not to to, to think about so um we've had numerous people try to correct that on with okay okay no 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 i i i steve always i always gets correct i, I always gets reverted yeah i i had rupert sheldrake on the show so i know exactly what you what you're talking yeah, yeah, about yeah 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 I, I really sure. know exactly what what you're talking about. Now, regarding intelligent design, all the idea is right. that you come from the scientific method and then you deduce something about uh, about God is uh, can be uh, is very elaborated in your book signature in the cell. The gist, I think, is rather simple, but it is mind blowing. If you look at the DNA sequence, which is A G C T A A G C T, what you have here is there is nothing that permit or forbid A to B after C or after D. The only thing that matter is the sequence. The sequence is what creates everything. If the sequence, the, in, the information is coded in the sequence, and if it is coded in the sequence, we, there must be some thing or someone which coded it into the system. And I think that this is a mind-blowing argument. This is just a mind-blowing argument. So if you can please, one, elaborate on what, what I just said, if I didn't make a big mistake. And two, since it is so mind-blowing, what is the materialistic, traditional materialistic view of this very phenomenon? Right. Well, uh, a little background here. The the the, the argument that I develop uh, is based on extremely mainstream molecular biology, and it goes back to the discoveries first in the 1950s. Watson and Crick elucidate the structure of the DNA molecule, the the famed he double helix. Uh, then in 1957, uh, Francis Crick, working on his own, formulates what he calls the sequence hypothesis: the idea that that the function of the DNA molecule or stretches of the DNA molecule that we now call genes, um, that the function of the DNA molecule does not depend on the physical properties of the subunits of the DNA, the so-called uh, nucleotide bases or bases that run along the interior of the spine of the molecule, but rather it depends on the arrangement or sequence of those uh, subunits in accord with an independent symbol convention, which is later discovered and elucidated and now is known as the genetic code. So what comes out of the molecular biological revolution in the late 50s and early 1960s is the realization that DNA is a true information carrying molecule, that you have genetic text that is converted and interpreted by a genetic code. And that information is being used to direct the construction of the protein molecules that perform all the important jobs in the cell. So you have a property, DNA has a property that's been variously called sequence specificity or specified complexity or uh, specified uh, or functional information. It's, it's lit it is a, a great uh, biotech uh, uh, worker here in our Seattle area, Leroy Hood simply says DNA contains digital code. Uh, Richard Dawkins acknowledges that it's like a machine code Bill Gates says it's computer, like a software program, but much more complex than anything we've ever created. So the the this discovery ends up changing the terms of debate among those who are trying to explain the origin of life. Because if you want to try explain the origin of the very first cell, you have to account for life as we find it. And so instead of just uh, a concern about uh, explaining the origin of the chemistry at work inside the cell, uh, researchers working on origin of life biology, which is what I did my PhD on, realize that they've got to account for the information 
inside living systems, inside DNA and RNA, and, and indeed even proteins, I think can be considered uh, information bearing molecules. And, um, and so various approaches arose in the late 1960s and 70s and right to the present to try to account for that information. Some based were initially um, just invoking chance, but the extreme improbability of getting all those uh, digital or alphabetic characters that are stored in the DNA molecule. I mean, they're functioning like digital or alphabetic characters that the, the uh, nucleotide bases led most researchers, I think, by the, the early 70s to reject the chance hypothesis. And I go into the details of the, the, the quantitative reasoning that's involved in that in the, in the book, but it, it's not a live approach. The, the other approach was to invoke a, a natural selection at a prebiotic level or a prebiotic, uh, in a prebiotic environment. The problem with that is that natural selection depends upon self-replication and self-replication in turn requires information-rich DNA and protein molecules. So it's, it ends up uh, begging the question of the very thing it is meant to explain. Uh, or, or begging the question as to the origin of the very thing it's meant to explain. Um, there's been a revival of that approach in something called the RNA world, but the RNA hypothesis also, just to get a self-replicating RNA molecule, requires uh, an intense or, or a, a, a very large amount of information of sequence specificity in an original RNA, and so it doesn't really uh, circumvent or solve the information problem. And then a third approach was is something called self-organizational scenarios, where there's a, where scientists were invoking uh, differential bonding properties. That the idea was that the A, Cs, Gs, and Ts in the DNA, or the amino acids and the proteins, were lining up in a specific way because there were chemical forces of attraction between the constituent parts of those large biomolecules that forced them to align in that way. Um, it turned out experimentally that that simply wasn't the case. Uh, and in the DNA, it's actually quite easy to see this. If you look at the structural formula of the molecule, there are no bonding properties between the information bearing parts of the DNA. There's, there's, there are bonds that cause the, the informational characters, the nucleotides to stick to the sugar phosphate backbone, which is the medium of the, of the message but there are no bonds along the axis that carries the information between the bases. And so there, it's, it's just simply not the case that there are physical chemical forces of attraction that determine the sequencing of the, of the characters. This was first recognized by the great- Just a second, just a second. Yeah. What you just say that this is, a, if we look at the sequence for AGCT, this is not a jigsaw puzzle where, okay, the, I have this piece and this piece must fit in. This is not right. This is just a sequence of number of a sequence okay. of digital numbers representing yes. something else, which right. means that it is not the uh, biology or the chemistry that stitch stitches two uh, uh, amino acid together. This is where the signatures, the information comes from. And say, oh, uh, uh, it just, how it, is it possible? Yeah, very well explained. It, although at the very end, you said amino acids. It's not the, the, sorry, the, sorry, the, sorry. the it's the it's not the chemistry that yeah. causes the information bearing nucleotide bases to stick together. I use an illustration with students of uh, I don't know if you have these in in Hebrew, but we have little magnetic letters in English, English letters with magnets on the inside, and we can stick them on a metallic surface like a refrigerator and then spell a message. Um, and the illustration is that there are, just as there are magnetic letters that stick the message to the medium uh, on that refrigerator, uh, in DNA, there are forces of attraction that account for why the nucleotide bases that, that are carrying the message stick to the 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 the, the backbone uh, of the molecule but there are no just as in the case of the magnetic letters the magnet magnetic force does not determine the arrangement of the letters the uh, physical chemical forces in dna do not determine the arrangement of the nucleotide bases uh, and this was first recognized by the great hungarian physical chemist michael polanyi 
who wrote two books in the, or two ar technical articles in the late 60s, one called Life's Irreducible Structure and another called Life Transcending Physics and Chemistry. And his point was the information that's necessary to produce life is not present, is not determined by the chemistry that holds the DNA molecule together. There's something else. It might, he, he argues it must have a, an ex, exogenous source, something beyond the chemistry must be responsible. And, and so those three... The, what the can three be beyond the, yeah. beyond the chemistry? I, I, I had a great talk with Michael Levine about, you know, the bioelectricity. But again, what he said is it's just science fiction. And, and it goes back to the question, who codes right. information? Where do, you get the, where, where do you get the code? And my, my argument... So yeah, there are... Th my argument it's, can be summarized in the following way. It's an inference to the best explanation and where the best explanation is the activity of a mind or an agent or an intelligence. Um, and what I do in Signature in the Cell is I look at, as I just described, um, the materialistic explanations that are either based on chance or physical chemical necessity, which is what these self-organizational models are, or some combination of the two. Uh, the great uh, uh, molecular biologist Jacques Monod wrote the famed book Chance and Necessity, and his argument that is that scientists must explain things or typically do explain things by reference to chance, necessity, or in a Darwinian-style explanation, some combination of the two. Mm -hmm. I show that all three of those approaches are uh, empirically inadequate and also inherently inadequate for theoretical reasons. And so I say, well, is there any other type of cause of which just we a second know? again? So it's yeah. not just we have like the a, a monkey on a million typewriters says uh, uh, to be or not to be, okay? Which is like the right. very famous example. I think David Berlinsky loved this example. Mm -hmm. And when we look at the searching space, okay, that spends when we do it, all, and let alone the searching space of three billion uh, AGCT. This is just cannot be done. We don't have, uh, we don't have time. Even if evolution started, even if the universe started 13 billion years ago, we just didn't have enough time. So this is one thing which is empirically. It's like you know, just trying to find the needle in a giant bone. That, but it, then, it, but then yeah. you add, say not not only, but from an from a theoretical point of view, it can be done. Because something again needs to pull it. Some something needs to put the information. It 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 can't be that out of uh, out of chance something like this just happened. Because when we have like a a, a, a mutation, when we have mutation, I had this talk with Michael Levine. When when we have mu mu mutation, in most of the times it will decrease the operation of the living organism okay most well, yeah, mutation this, will ruin well and this is this is a uh, mutations don't really come into play in getting the information necessary to get life going in the first place you need something prior to the mutation selection mechanism that can account for the origin of the first information bearing molecules uh, and so that's but there are there are chance based or there were chance-based theories of the origin of life really only through the 1950s. I mean, once the molecular biology became apparent, people abandoned that approach. When we're critiquing chance now, I go into a very rigorous uh, kind of probabilistic uh, argument about this. And it's not it's not simply that things are improbable, but rather that the DNA and, and protein molecules, the RNA molecules, the information-bearing molecules are improbable relative to the number of opportunities that would exist in the best case, given a, a, a 14 billion year old universe, considering all the possible interactions that might occur between elementary particles. It's, it's a second order probabilistic analysis where you analyze the probability of the event in relation to the number of opportunities there are. And, and, it's, and, and your needle in the haystack uh, illustration is apt because um, it's the, the search space is just too large in relation to the number of opportunities. And so it becomes more probable than not that the chance hypothesis, uh, it, it's, it becomes the, the chance, uh, finding the information in the available time, given the maximum number of available trials, uh, 
ensures that you can sorry it's difficult to explain this quickly um the the number of trials available ensure that you will only search a tiny portion of the search space and therefore it's more the chance hypothesis is more likely to be false than true it's more likely that a chance search will fail rather than succeed and therefore the hypothesis that that's how it happened is more likely overwhelmingly more likely to be false than true and on that ground and that and on that that basis you have very strong grounds for rejecting it and but in the book i show that we're not i don't just look at the materialistic hypotheses based on chance i also look at those based on uh physical chemical necessity and and those that try to combine physical chemical necessity with some sort of random or chance process and then after all that, I say, is there, but is there, since all of those are inadequate, is there another type of cause that is known to produce the effect in question? And the effect in question being the, being the kind of information that we find in DNA, RNA, and proteins. And I argue that there is such a cause, that cause is intelligence or mind. And I infer that or consider that not based on just the failure of the materialistic explanations but based on our knowledge of the cause and effect structure of the world that we see many many instances of minds producing the kinds of information that we would that we need to explain the origin of life so we have positive knowledge of the causal power of intelligence with respect to the thing we're trying to explain so this is not an argument from ignorance or a god of the gaps argument it's rather uh, what philosophers of science call an inference to the best explanation, which is, by the way, the use of that method is exactly the same method that Darwin used in The Origin of Species. So here, here's the argument in short. Whenever we see information and we trace it back to its source, and, and I define information very carefully as, as functional or uh, specified information, where the arrangement of the characters is specified to perform a given independent function. So whenever we see information of that kind, whether we're talking about a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or information embedded in a radio signal, or even the information that's produced by, say, an RNA simulation experiment in origin of life research, even the tiny bits of information that can be generated in the laboratory in these origin of life experiments are always generated by a mind, just as the information in computer code is generated by a mind or a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book. All these different examples we have where we see information that's functionally specified and we trace that information back to its source, we always come to a mind, not a material process. A computer program requires a programmer, for example. And therefore, when we find information in the DNA molecule that has uh, um, that, that is functionally specified, that constitutes a sequence-specific, functionally specified um, s uh, string of information, we can infer that that information arose from an intelligent agent, not an undirected process. This is the inference that I draw and the argument that I make. So I look at four different possible types of causes for the origin of the information in DNA and argue that mind or intelligence provides the best explanation for the origin of that information based on our uniform and repeated experience of what it takes to generate information um, in in all the all the observations that we've made of the world around us okay so I must now I think stop and ask you what you say when we whenever we see in our universe information it means that someone coded it we had if we trace it backwards we have a mind my question is I have two questions. One is, how does it differ, if it does, from the clockwork argument? If you see a clock, someone uh, uh, someone built the clock. Okay, so how does it uh, it differ from this very from this traditional uh, argument? Yeah, this thank you for one. asking that. Yeah, that's a very important question. Um, <clears throat> I think the clockwork argument probably has been undersold because the claims that it was refuted by Darwin. I think are looking a little thin because Darwinism he made is him, in, he, in he such made trouble. He made it famous. He made it yes. famous. <laughs> yes, right. He did. Um, but but there is a very important distinction or difference in the I think in the rigor of the argument that we've developed for intelligent design versus the the Paley argument from 1802. 
um, Paley argued in a strictly analogical manner. He said that clocks are like organisms or watches are like organisms. We know that organisms came from an intelligent cause. Or sorry, we know that, that <laughs> watches came from watchmakers. Therefore, the organism must have come from an intelligence. But a, a strictly analogical arguments depend on the degree of similarity between the effect and the and the the two effects in question. And um, <clears throat> those who uh, attempted to refute Paley, it was claimed that that Hume refuted Paley, but Hume died before Paley wrote his <laughs> argument. But in any case, Humeans have attempted to uh, refute the argument by pointing out that in addition to similarities between mechanisms and organisms, there are also differences. And, uh, and the Paley argument doesn't really account for those differences. And therefore, it doesn't, it can't provide a really precise measure of the degree of similarity between the two, uh, two things that are in, in need of explanation. And if there isn't a, a precise way of of assessing those degrees of similarity, it's impossible to know how uh, reliable the inference to a similar cause is in the case of the inference to intelligent design for organisms. So and, I can have, just a second, so I, I, I can have, with your permission, a modified argument for the Paley argument, an ordered universe, and I think everyone who studies physics or chemistry or biology knows that we have an ordered universe, must imply someone who uh, order it or, 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 or make the arrangement. Like if say that says that your room is perfectly neat, someone did it. Okay, so this is it's not just an organism. We see the universe as an order structure. We have the laws of nature, the laws of physics, chemistry, biology, etc. Hence, someone is responsible for it. So how does this modified argument differ from the? intelligence there is intelligence in the dna sequence therefore someone coded it well with the tools of modern information sciences information theory and other forms of analysis of the qualitative features of living organisms we're able to much more precisely characterize the effect in question the effect that most needs explanation and that effect is not simple order it's not that watches are like uh, organisms in that they're both complex, but rather that there is a very specific property present in the DNA uh, or, uh, that uh, a very uh, attribute. There's a very specific attribute of, of DNA and RNA and proteins. And, and that is what uh, origin of life scientists and information scientists have called specified complexity or specified information information in the sense of of uh of a sequence of characters that are arranged precisely to perform an overall function and when we find that property in our experience it always arises from an intelligent agent and therefore the presence of that property in in dna and rna and proteins can be best explained by reference to an, an intelligent agent um the difference between our argument and the Paley argument is that his argument is based on similarity of two effects, whereas we're able to characterize the effect in question, and it, and therefore we can characterize the information present in DNA and show that it's identical to information in other systems, the origin of which we know. So we, we can develop knowledge of the cause and effect structure of the world based on independent observation of the origin of that same type of effect. Um, and so we have, we have an identity of effects. We don't have to depend it for the force of the argument on a, a subjective assessment of similarity of effects. And therefore the argument is not formally an argument from analogy, but actually an inference to the best explanation of the same of the same type of effect, which can be characterized with precision. I it, This is, again, a, a somewhat technical, philosophical, and scientific discussion, which I have uh, developed in, at some length in Chapter 17 of Signature in the Cell, a chapter where I address a number of common objections to the design argument, one of which, oh, isn't this just a replay of William Paley? Well, it's not. I think Paley is undersold, as I said. I think I, the argument is stronger than people realize, because I don't think Darwin refuted it. 
but nevertheless i think there's a stronger form of the of the design argument and we develop it based on the information bearing properties not mere subjective assessments of similarity regarding what you just said i think it was bertrand russell who said about on solemn argument about the existence of god that it is much easier to laugh at the argument than to point to the exact a uh, point in the argument where it is false because if you read it or when you read it it's okay this is very stupid argument but okay where exactly does it fall? And it is very hard. You you talked about chapter 17 in Signature in the Cell. I want to go to chapter 20 in the Return of the God Hypothesis, entitled sure. Acts of God or God of the Gaps. Now, you addressed this question just before, but I want, if you can please elaborate. The idea of God of Gaps, that if we don't know something about the scientific world, we can do two things. One is to say we don't know, yes? In the in the modern era, uh, they, for the first time, when they uh, uh, drew, drew the, the, the maps of the world, where they didn't know, they just say we don't know, and they didn't, you know, invented uh, mythological Christians. But we can say, oh, this is God. This is where God in, in, intervened. But the problem is, and this is a very serious problem for in, in, all, in Orthodox Judaism, when you, when you put God, when you use God, when you don't know something about science, whenever science discovers this or closes the gap, you can take God away. So if you use God as someone who, who can you know, close all the gaps, be aware, be prepared that someone, someday, this gap will be closed. So my question is, you also, you always refer to the, this is the best explanation possible, but maybe we can come up sooner or later with a different materialistic explanation, which reduces to what we just said, or, or, or the work that you just did is basically the God of the gaps. So how do you address this question? Right. Well, God of the gaps is a shorthand way of uh, asserting that the intelligent argument for intelligent design is uh, committing the logical, the informal logical fallacy of an argument from ignorance. And arguments of those types have the following logical form. Uh, cause A is, we now know, insufficient to produce effect X. Therefore, cause B did it without offering any independent evidence that cause B is sufficient to produce cause X or was present to produce cause X. So it's a merely it's critiquing one hypothesis or a causal explanation and then inferring without any evidence that another is better or sufficient or adequate. That's not how we're arguing. It's not how I'm arguing. In the case of the, in Signature in the Cell, when I'm making the case for intelligent design, I show that chance, physical chemical necessity, and the combination of the two hypotheses of each of those three, as it happens, um, exhaustive set of possible materialistic explanations all fail for empirical and theoretical reasons. But then I say, then, but then I showed that there is another cause, another possible cause that we could consider, and we have positive evidence of the causal efficacy of that of that positive, uh, of that uh, of that other causal possibility, and and further that be, because there is only one known cause of the origin of functionally specified digital information, and that cause is intelligence. When we when we see evidence of that cause or of that effect, um, we can infer back to that only known cause. When there's only one known cause, you can establish both the causal adequacy and the causal uh, existence uh, or the existence of the cause from the effect itself. If 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 it's the case that where there's smoke, there's fire. If I see smoke wafting up over a distant hillside. I can infer that there's fire below simply because I know that there's only one known cause of smoke and that's fire. Um, and so this is not an argument from ignorance. This is an argument from our knowledge of the cause and effect structure of the world of what it takes to generate functionally specified digital information. 
Um, this just a second because uh, we are very short on time. So yes, sorry. Okay. We... No, 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 no. This is great. But what you just say, I couldn't agree more. But this is not an evidence. This is a plausible. This is an argument, and I will even go with you and say this is a very plausible argument. This is a great argument. Okay, but just like you said, up until now, with the only thing that 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 produce information is intelligence. This is we are. I'm absolutely one hundred percent with you. But what if in the big universe we find something else? It's like the the black swan theory. Or usually smoke comes, fire creates smoke. But maybe one day we find smoke that doesn't come out of fire. And so basically, what you just say is that you are presenting a very good plausible argument. Would you consider this an argument? Oh no, this is an evidence. Well, it's a it's an it's an argument based on evidence or it's an inference based on evidence. But remember, uh, <clears throat> we've also been accused of not being scientific. What but, what is but, the falsifies but, 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 of of intelligence well, well, design? Well, let, well, let's set aside falsification because that's a, a red herring, which I can come back to. But the the point is that what what you're saying is that it's not it's not a proof, right? Uh, in the sense of an ab absolute certainty, because all scientific inferences have to remain uh, are provisional based on the knowledge that we have of the effect in question and the cause and effect structure of the world at present. And so in formulating the evidence for the argument for intelligent design, I formulated it as a provisional scientific inference, as all scientific inferences are. So we then we have our critics who say, on the one hand, well, it's not a proof. But then they turn around and say, well, it's not scientific. Well, it's, it, it is scientific precisely because it's not a proof. Science doesn't provide proofs. Now, I think there are some very good in-principle reasons to reject those alternative materialistic approaches. Prebiotic selection, natural selection begs the question. It, re, it, it, it is begging the question of the very thing it's trying to explain, namely an information-rich molecule. The theories based on physical chemical necessity fail to understand that that information is different than order, than regularity. Physical chemical uh, uh, laws, by definition, uh, describe patterns of repeating order, not information. So that's that's exactly the wrong kind of uh, explanation to pursue. And the chance explanation we've already kind of yes. explained. So all three of these things have not just um, slight empirical inadequacies, they have fundamental theoretical deficiencies that make them unlikely to to render a better type of explanation later. But with that stated, we have to always be open to the possibility that well, maybe maybe something better will come along, or maybe something as good. We may end up with a situation where we have two equally good explanations: one based on intelligence, and maybe some materialistic explanation comes along. And then we, then we would have two good explanations that wouldn't necessarily refute the the idea approach. But right now, ID is, I think, decisively superior. Intelligent design is decisively superior to any materialistic explanation. And for both empirical and fundamental theoretical reasons that lead me to suspect it's unlikely to be overturned as the best explanation. But it is provisional in the logical structure that's been used to develop it. And that makes it, that's one of the things that makes it properly scientific. We're not presenting a, a deductively certain proof from from uh, from self-evident axioms, as you might do in mathematics, because this is not this is a scientific method, which leads me to my <clears throat> unfortunately last question okay. today with you. <laughs> okay, so again, this is very important. It's not that like the uh, Occam razor that the materialistic world uh, has no uh, extra argument or hypothesis that they use and you uh, intelligent de design have. It's Nothing is one hundred percent, not one hundred sure for intelligent design, nor the materialistic world. Which leads me to my next, my last question. It seems that nothing can change the mind of His Holiness Dawkins. Just nothing, and which many, many people, I think it was Roger Scruton, said that this is a religion. He is a fanatic religious uh, person. And my question is, can you? propose an experiment that if goes in one way, you say, mm, I think that we made a mistake. Can you propose a falsable 
experiment for intelligent design? Um, two quick points. One is that falsification as um, um, an idea that determines scientific status has fallen into some disfavor among uh, people who study the methods of science, which are the philosophers of science. And that's because falsification presupposes that that uh, theories are confirmed or disconfirmed by single predictions that either come true or don't. And it's very rarely that simple, that rather one tests an idea by comparing it against a preponderance, by looking at the preponderance of data and looking at both the explanatory power of the hypothesis and its ability to predict new data. And so intelligent design is that exactly that kind of hypothesis. It, 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 it ex explains a lot of facts we already knew, and it has made predictions about things that have come true that were unexpected. For example, that the information, or that rather that the, the, the so-called junk DNA would turn out to be importantly functional rather than junk as the Darwinists were predicting. Um, and so, yes, there are actually many, many at, at the, um, and judged in that way, the appropriate way to judge a theory. I generate in the in the epilogue of uh, Signature in the Cell, 10 different ID-based predictions about the natural world. And some of them have already been tested and found and, and, and been confirmed. Um, and there will are others that, you know, await to be um, tested. So ID is very testable in three ways. <clears throat> it, it can be tested against our knowledge of cause and effect. It can be tested against our, our uh, against facts that we already have about uh, living cells or uh, the structure of animal life or the fossil record, for example. And it can be tested by the predictions that it makes about facts that have yet to be uh, assessed or determined or observed. So it's it is eminently testable in the way any good scientific hypothesis should be. As for Dawkins, I want to just uh, raise something. I appreciate him because of the clarity with which he defines issues. And he has a wonderful quotation in which he says that the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if at bottom there is no purpose, no design, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And I love that framing because what he's showing is that a metaphysical hypothesis, his hypothesis of scientific materialism, which is what he means by blind, pitiless indifference, that everything arose by undirected material processes, uh, is testable against the by making observations about the properties of the universe. And what I show in the most recent book, Return of the God Hypothesis, is there are three really important properties that the universe uh, possesses that are precisely what you would not expect based on Dawkins's scientific atheism or scientific materialism. First of all, that the physical universe of matter, space, time, and energy, as best we can tell from multiple lines of evidence and from developments in theoretical physics, had a definite beginning. The materialists have always affirmed that the thing from which everything else came, the matter and energy is matter and energy, that, that there is eternal, that matter and energy are eternally and eternal and self-existent. Um, that has not turned out to be the case. Matter and energy appear to have had a beginning. Secondly, the universe from the beginning has been finely tuned against all odds to make life possible. This is not expected and was not expected on a materialist view. In order to account for that, the materialists have had to come up with elaborate ad hoc hypotheses such as the multiverse, but then it turns out that the universe generating mechanisms that are necessary to make the multiverse work are themselves require them themselves require prior fine tuning, so fine tuning is not expected or well explained on the materialistic hypothesis of Dawkins, and then finally the digital code and the information bearing properties of DNA are quite surprising from a materialistic perspective. Given our knowledge that it takes someone to code, you need a programmer to generate programming or code. Uh, this is not expected. And Dawkins himself has acknowledged this in a tweet just uh, two summers ago. He uh, um, admitted to being knocked uh, sideways with, with wonder at the information processing system inside the cell, which had been recently an uh, animated by an Australian group. So I, I really appreciate the way Dawkins frames the issue. He His framing implies that the metaphysical hypothesis of scientific materialism is testable 
And what I've argued in my most recent book is that it's it's testable and it has been found wanting, whereas intelligent design and even the idea of a theistic designer is also testable because it generates certain expectations about what you would see in the universe. And those expectations have been confirmed by our most surprising scientific findings of the 20th century. Uh, I, I Wow, this was just too short. I have nothing else to say. Steve Meyer, I promise you one hour and I want to keep my promise. Thank you so much for your time and effort and your great books. I think that we must do like a second half for this great conversation. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Roy. For Yes, and for coming so well prepared and for such a stimulating discussion. Let's do it again. This is great. This is great. Thank you so much. Yes, bye -bye. shalom. shalom. אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. אז תנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת אתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים מדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול. וכיף בשיחה הבאה.